Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. The last 12 months have seen the unprecedented resurgence of an awareness of and public engagement with green politics. Climate change, although of course it never actually went away, is back, and discursively speaking it has been demasked. At last, in 2019, we are finally referring to it as the crisis that it undoubtedly is. According to a recent YouGov poll here in the UK, public concern about the climate crisis has reached a record high. Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg, the Green New Deal, words that have failed to register only a year ago have become household names. The urgency with which we need to act in order to prevent the worst effects of runaway global warming is now widely acknowledged, but the big questions remain of what that action should be. Deep down, we all know that simply banning plastic straws won't be enough, but is even a wholesale technological revolution adequate if the logic of market capitalism remains intact? Are we even all in this together, or does the softness of our government's emissions reduction targets point to the expendability of those in the global south? I'm Chris Brown, and joining me today to discuss these questions and the idea of climate justice are Chaitanya Kumar, Senior Policy Advisor at Green Alliance, a think tank working to ensure UK political leaders deliver ambitious solutions to global environmental issues. Simon Pirani, Senior Research Fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies and author of Burning Up, A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption. That was published by Pluto last year. And finally, Asad Raymond, Executive Director of War and Want. Now, before we um, get stuck in, I'll mention that once again, We've curated a selection of books that relate to today's discussion, and they're all 50% off on plutobooks.com for the next month, exclusively for our podcast listeners. You just need to enter the code PODCAST at the checkout to get that discount, and you can check out the books on offer by going to plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading. So I'd like to thank all three of you very much for coming on the show today. I wondered, Simon, if perhaps we might start with you. So your book, Burning Up, came out last summer. Appropriately enough, it was published in the midst of that massive heatwave we had here. And in the book, you talk about the hope that understanding how fossil fuel consumption has spiralled out of control in the last 50 years will help us to shape the future transition away from fossil fuels. So I was wondering if you could maybe go into a bit more depth, firstly, about the history of fossil fuel consumption and how things have changed so dramatically in such a short space of time. Okay, uh, thank you, Chris. I think the first thing to say is that fossil fuels are and always have been, consumed mostly by big technological systems. So the petrol you put in your car or the gas you burn on your cooker is a relatively small part of the picture. And there are much bigger parts of the picture. Industry, industrial agriculture systems, which rely heavily on fossil fuels, not only to transport the stuff from place to place, but on uh, fertilizers, which are fabricated out of fossil fuels, military systems. So the United States Department of Defense consumes more fossil fuels than Nigeria with its 200 million population. And urban systems that we all live in, uh, transport systems, systems of buildings that we live in and so on. And these are systems over which the people who deal with them have very, very little control. Whether it's the builders who build them, whether it's the people who live in those homes, it's not they who have designed those homes to be energy inefficient and to use electricity or gas in the way that they're used. And perhaps the best example is cars. The internal combustion engine, which is in most cars, was a great invention in its time in the late 19th century. Uh, but it wasn't that invention alone that caused the massive expansion of oil consumption in the 20th century. It was the industry that was built on the basis of that engine, the production lines, Henry Ford and other uh, car magnates uh, put into their factories in the early 20th century as a new way of exploiting workers' labor. Uh, it was the role that those uh, companies play very central in American capitalism. And it was in America, first of all, that the car culture that we uh, now know in this country as well and, and many other rich countries became predominant uh, in the period before the Second World War. It took the political lobbying power of those car corporations, the vicious battle they fought against the uh, state authorities in 
the USA against any kind of fuel efficiency uh, targets. And then coming uh, to the period after the war and the post-war boom, the huge uh, advertising campaigns and the way that those car companies were at the center of consumerism. And then when the Democrats in the USA finally uh, caught them with some fuel regulations, they moved consumers by their many millions onto uh, sports utility vehicles, SUVs to get around the regulations. So it's that whole process. And then, of course, the process of building roads, building parking spaces, building cities around cars. That's a social process that we've seen in capitalism uh, during the whole 20th century. So when we talk about consuming fuels, we mustn't just think of that annoying person next door who could get out of his SUV and drive a bike. And of course, there are many such people. But it's much more about this the way that this whole system has developed so that even the biggest consumers of fossil fuels on an individual basis who are indeed typically American consumers who drive SUVs, but even those people actually don't have control over the system of which they're part of. That, that control is held by the people who have power in wealth and society as a whole. And it's that that we have to deal with if we're going to talk about uh, reducing consumption. Final point is that if we're talking about the last 30 years, since scientists have established the science of global warming and the fact that carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels is the main cause of it, we have to say there's also a political element. The world's governments had a meeting in 1991 at Rio. They established very clearly that they accepted the science. Everybody, even Saudi Arabia, voted for it. Everybody acknowledged that that science was there and that uh, fossil fuel use had to be reduced. And they adopted the so-called market-based schemes uh, to reduce fossil fuel consumption. And since that 1991 conference, we've seen fossil fuel use uh, thanks to capitalism expanding in the way that it does, we've seen that fossil fuel use increase by 60%. That's the crisis that uh, we have to deal with. And that's the crisis that is actually bringing school pupils, as you mentioned, out on the streets and is changing the whole discussion on this. Clearly, we could move to a system where renewable share of world electricity generation was total, but that wouldn't really solve the problem. Is a move to a new technological system within the rubric of our existing social and economic system enough? Arguably no, but why? I mean, I think there is also important to see climate change within a much broader arc where, you know, when we look at, for example, from slavery right through to colonialism and then the period of imperialism to neoliberalism and climate change, what's unifies all of those periods is, of course, this ability in the global north to sacrifice the global south and the extraction of wealth and resources uh, from both people and, of course, from the natural environment. And so the solutions that we talk about to the climate crisis simply can't carry on the same logic. And so the idea, for example, that the answer to the fossil fuel industry and the fossil fuel economy is to green that economy by renewables. I mean, first, fundamentally, it's not possible. You can't green an economy built on fossil fuels. You know, we would have to clearly see and the climate scientists tell us we have to see a massive reduction in energy so it raises big questions what is productive energy who has the right to energy will we prioritize dealing with energy poverty in the global south the close to three billion people who don't have access to clean energy or clean cooking or electricity or do we continue to primarily give most of the energy to the industrial complex. So I think there is a question in terms of that. Then, of course, there is a resource question. You know, already the European Union, as we as a continent, we rely on, think about 60% of the land that we use from the global south. We rely on at least nearly 40 or 50% of resources from the global south. So when we live on a finite planet, the question of then both the economy and what it's for, growth, who for... All of these things come into question and they are part and parcel of what defines climate justice. I mean, it's interesting that at this moment, so many people use that word, right? Governments use that word. I've even heard companies use that word now, right? People hold the banner, but it was came out of a term, it came out of struggle, it came out of movements who broke with mainstream environmental thinking in the global north, which simply saw the question of climate change as being a simple linear one about reducing emissions, to climate justice, which saw it as a systemic issue, 
which coupled the economic crisis of neoliberalism with climate change, but also looked to deliver social and economic justice. And unless you look at all of this, the climate crisis through that lens, and then look at what the solutions are, I think you get into problems. And that's, of course, you're absolutely right. That the, That's why for 30 years we saw so much obsession with market mechanisms. And, you know, to their shame, the majority of the what we would now call the NGO sector or civil society colluded with that, right? Because they didn't want to be seen as being promoting anything too radical. I mean, at some point, somebody's going to write a thesis on, you know, how to make mistake after mistake in dealing with climate change, both in terms of their strategy, which was largely an elite advocacy strategy that governments would act rationally once they understood the problem, without actually understanding there were powerful economic interests who wanted to continue business as usual. And that business as usual has pervaded literally every part of climate thinking. To an extent that I would say, and I've been in meetings as having spent a decade at the climate negotiations with both policymakers and with NGOs, many NGOs, where they literally do accept that the global south will pay a price and then calculate that in. You know, we're now talking about 1.5 degree as being the threshold which we can't breach. I remember when the movements were talking about one degree and the NGOs and governments were talking about two degrees as a safe target. We said there's no safe target. The question is how many people in the global south are you going to sacrifice? So for me, this is a deeply political question and not simply a question of like resources or is it possible in, even if it was possible to mine as much cobalt and copper and iron as we needed. And of course, it's not. Talking about cars, for example, if the UK carried on with its target of electric cars by 2050, we'd need something like about a third of all the copper in the world, right? We'd need huge amounts of cobalt, more than is being produced. So, like, who will have the right to that cobalt? Is it our right to be able to drive or is it somebody else's right to have heating, you know? A lot to agree with there. Um, I think it it speaks to a couple of key injustices that have been prevalent for the last several decades. Uh, one which Simon touched upon is is the injustice embedded within who builds what and for whom. Uh, a lot of this has been driven by large vested interests and they've just grown bigger and bigger. And then they get to dictate and shape the future that we live in. I'm surrounded by gadgets these days, like most of us are. But at no point did I get to say, do I need it? What is it for? What will it do? We sort of live with in a system where a lot is sort of thrust upon us and we sort of try and figure out how to live with. And fossil fuels has, has been the same. That is not to dismiss the fact that fossil fuels have brought certain benefits to our lives. That's fairly clear, fairly should be obvious. But it's, it's gone to a stage where we're completely being blindsided by the fact that it's got massive negative consequences and we're refusing to do anything about it. What Assad sort of touched upon is the notion of justice being spoken about now, even though movements have been talking about it for a long time. It is not rocket science to understand that those who are contributing least to carbon emissions will be the most impacted by it. it it's not rocket science. We knew that from the beginning. The moment climate science become more and more evident, we knew that that was the foundation, the basis upon which this problem gets perpetrated. But we, we've refused to actually take that narrative and take that framework head on. We've just focused on the fact that a bit of technological evolution, innovation will solve that problem. It will solve the problem from a point of view of carbon emissions. But what we're talking about is it's not just about looking at it in a silo. It's not just about reducing carbon emissions. It is looking at a systemic issue and the fact that we are where we are in this mess because of not just putting carbon in the atmosphere, which obviously is the case, but also all the underlying factors as to why we keep putting them. I'm reminded of David Wallace Wells' recent book, The Uninhabitable Earth, which for a variety of reasons is now the bestseller uh, in the US and around the world, where he talks about one of the most startling facts in the book is the fact that ever since we've known about climate change, i.e. the last three decades, is when we have actually put out the maximum amount of carbon in the atmosphere. So there's some strange dissonance going on in the fact that we know of this problem and yet we have worsened it even more in the last three decades. Again, it doesn't take rocket science for us to figure out that that's happening because of certain very powerful interests who have completely ignored the problem at the risk of people in the global south. The, the desire to sort of gain more profits, essentially, to keep ramming this uh, system down our throats. And that, that, that needs to change. And I suppose we'd get into the idea of where the Green New Deal sits into this from a policy framework. But 
maybe others want to jump in there. Before, I mean, I'd written down in my notes something which has been touched on, which is again from your book, Simon. You wrote that the announcement of emissions reduction targets at the 2015 Paris Climate Talks had uh, no discernible effect on fossil fuel companies' market values because it did not change markets' view that regulation is unlikely to threaten their asset values for the foreseeable future. I mean, I think that's quite pertinent, the fact that the regulatory framework, these emissions targets that are being sort of announced at these climate summits every few years, the market doesn't see them as a threat. The markets do not see it as a threat because the way capitalism works is that capital will always go seeking uh, the most profitable opportunity. Chris, you mentioned earlier renewable generation of electricity, and that is an area where in some countries, a small number of countries, there's a noticeable increase in investment in essentially green technology. And uh, there are issues about like the cobalt and the other materials that go into those uh, solar panels, and we can't uh, ignore those or brush over those, and those certainly play a part in the whole dynamic between the global north and the global south. But it's also true that uh, these are technologies, solar, wind, and so on, which can generate electricity without burning fossil fuels. What we've seen in the last couple of years is an excellent report by the Trade Unions for Energy Democracy organization has just uh, recently drawn attention to this, that actually in the last two or three years, whereas there was a big surge prior to that in investment in renewables generation, it's fallen off quite sharply in the last couple of years, not because it's no longer profitable to invest in those technologies, but simply because that capital goes somewhere else and finds something else to do. And uh, we've seen this again and again with the supposed use of markets to uh, bring in these new technologies. I mean, I think the other thing that companies do, so fossil fuel companies, they're now talking about, let's have hydrogen instead of uh, natural gas. There's a big project up in Leeds where Equinor, the Norwegian oil company, is involved and they want to turn the natural gas grid over to hydrogen. As any chemist will tell you, there's a problem with that. You've got to put the carbon somewhere. And in Leeds, actually, the old oil fields in the North Sea, which are now exhausted, are not very far away, and they may be able to make it work on that basis. But the figures that are being quoted in international reports for the use of this kind of technology are just completely ridiculous. And it's more of a survival strategy for oil companies than anything to do with addressing the technological challenges. And you mentioned electric cars, same point. Electric cars is about uh, a survival strategy for car companies. Unless you generate 100% of your electricity from renewables, and we're very, very far from doing that anywhere on Earth, it's very doubtful that you have any uh, significant reduction in carbon emissions by swapping petrol or diesel cars uh, for electric ones. So it's all about a survival strategy for car companies and and therefore for urban transport systems that are based on cars. And um, my answer to... Where's this transition going to go uh, from here? I'm sure 30 or 40 years ago, I would have said for sure, you know, we have to overthrow capitalism and that's the only way. And I I mean, essentially, I I still feel that, but I don't see that as a very near-term prospect. But what I would say is that we're clearly going to find that truly effective solutions to this problem are constantly going to hit up against the social relations of capitalism within which we live. I mean, cities need to transition to being nicer, healthier, uh, cleaner places to live without cars. So one of my favorite statistics is Atlanta in the USA has 11 times the carbon emissions per head of Barcelona in Spain. And it's essentially because in Atlanta, everybody's driving around in those SUVs. Are they 11 times happier? I'm sure your listeners can work out the answer to that themselves. So it is about a transition away from the economic growth, the car-based cities, these energy-intensive systems, and There are technologies which can be used, but they're never going to realise their potential under the economic system that we live under now. Can I I just say something just about what you said about fossil fuel companies weren't worried about the regulations of the Paris Agreement? Because I think it's important for us to not draw the wrong conclusions. So as we've heard from Simon, right, when you look at the 1992 Climate Convention, it sets out 
you know, very, very clear sort of principles. You know, polluter pays, historical responsibility, those that have emitted more will be responsible. They'll have to cut their emissions. They'll help to help poorer countries who are dealing with poverty. In, th- in fact, it could say it was quite a radical document for its time. But then systematically from that point onwards, there's been an attempt to weaken that, right? First with market mechanisms. And so when we come to actually the Paris Agreement, what the Paris Agreement did and had happened again on the behest of the United States, with the connivance of the European Union, who supported them, and to a large extent, most of the mainstream environmental movements and NGOs, they said, what's the most important outcome we want is an agreement. If to get an agreement, we need to take out science-based targets that are legally binding, that are top-down, we'll take them out. The Paris Agreement is simply says... We'll aspire to keep temperatures if we can at 1.5. We'll go for the two-degree goal. And you do what you want. And that's why the targets actually in the Paris Agreement led to at least 3.4 degree warming, anything up to seven degrees. So, of course, the fossil fuel companies weren't worried. That's a question, actually. There was no regulation in the Paris Agreement. And that's a deeper question about the weakness of the movement that was able to put pressure on its own government to be able to have legally binding targets. Now, we talk about 1.5 as the threshold which we can't breach. Now, any conversation about the UK, for example, would have to be prefaced on that our historical responsibility would lead us to about minus 200% emissions reductions, right? By 20, not net zero by 2015, this idea. I mean, all of this pushing it to 2050 is just, it's not based on the science and it's not based on any concept of justice. So, because I, I think some people look at the climate negotiations and say, or they fail. And for me, the climate negotiations don't fail. It's, in they fail. it's a question about political economy. The climate negotiations have never been about the climate in abstract or environment in the abstract. It's been about the domination of rich, developed countries, protecting their economy, largely against poorer countries who have been saying, act. The only change into that balance of power comes people and our movement and our ability to be able to affect that. So I say that because, of course, next year the climate negotiations are coming to the UK. And what we shouldn't be doing is saying, oh, that's just irrelevant in the fight. Actually, it's a very, very important fight because climate change is fundamentally a problem of the global commons. As a problem of the global commons, the only way to solve it is if you have a global agreement which is fair and equitable and is science-based. And... If we start from scratch, we would say, you should have this space where every country is represented. It should meet once a year. It should go into different places so it doesn't get locked into one frame. That's the climate negotiations. The failure is power. And that, to me, is the key question also about the Green Deal conversations, right? How do we build power to be able to deliver the Green Deal or the Global Green Deal or whatever version that we talk about? And on what principles is that going to be based? I mean, (laughs) it's... I mean, Simon, you painted sort of the almost in some sense the end state. Like we would like to see our cities in some way. We'd like to see how we drive or how we not drive and all of that. I suppose the sort of messy bit is how do you get there and and what lies in between. Assuming, I'm just putting out a hypothetical here, say that vision of an end state in the UK, for example, is by 2050. Pull out of thin air, nothing to do with the net zero target. But from now till 2050... I find it personally difficult as to imagine how that might happen. It is to do, as Azad said, a lot to do with political power, a lot to do with how politics has to change, make that vision more realistic, more palatable, more sellable, and from the bottom up, try and make that happen. But yeah, how do how do we sort of get there? Do we mean we try and like say no to cars all, all of a sudden, or do we do we sort of ease into it? Uh, do we sort of allow certain industries to die? which I've heard should happen. Like, I'm not sure anyone who's going to sort of shed tears if Shell goes bankrupt tomorrow. But, you know, what, what sort of transition are we talking about here? Because you're right that both of you are right in the sense that just replacing one set of technologies which are causing damage to the environment with another set of technologies that don't necessarily change the underlying dynamics of how technology and how we relate to that is a problem. Just sort of striking that balance between trying to go fast on reducing emissions while also making sure that we're doing it in a manner that's that's just. And that's the question that but, keeps but, coming up. But the answer to just, I, I mean, again, you know, when people will look back at the climate movement and say, how can you make so many mistakes? You know, talking about polar bears as your image or talking about less, talking about everything to be about worse off rather than talking about better. The answer to the car question is we should have 100% decentralised, renewable energy powered 
transport systems which are free, right? That's what we should be doing as an answer to the question of the car. We should be talking about warm homes for people. And so we build a social licence. I totally have absolute respect for many trade unions who look at the environment movement and say, you're basically playing lip service to this new vision because we can't see ourselves there, right? People coined the word just transition as if that would be the answer. And of course, the experience in Germany, as we know, has been union jobs, well-paid with pensions, moved to non-unionised jobs on precarious contracts in the renewable energy industry. So we've got to start saying, well, how do we guarantee it's a fair and just transition for people? That brings us to big questions because... And it does ramp up against capitalism or a neoliberalism, right? Because if we break down neoliberalism, say, you know, it was deregulation and unfettered power of the corporations, the answer to the climate crisis is is actually public ownership in various ways, right? You've got to publicly own transport, you've got to publicly own utilities, you've got to... It envisions a society in a very, very different way. And that I find that quite an interesting thing for us as the progressive movement, that we've lost the ability to imagine that there is something different from neoliberalism, right? Which was a construct created and imposed. Surely we could dismantle it. But if we dismantle it with hope and a vision and a positive agenda, I think it is possible. I think it is possible for us to say tomorrow, actually we take away the social licence of the fossil fuel companies, not just in terms of their processing, but in terms of their extraction. Because you have to. How do you limit extraction of fossil fuels? The only way you're going to have regulation, right? You have to regulate and say no fossil fuel company is allowed to extract any more fossil fuels anywhere in the world apart from this bit for whatever. That means we need a different form of governance, a different kind of intervention, which basically means you have to dismantle neoliberalism (laughs) to get there, right? I mean, the question I have then is while governance has to change, while the sort of underlying institutions have to change, Can we confidently say within public ownership, carbon emissions by default will also fall? Uh, Because you can remove all the fossil fuel companies as they stand now uh, and the kind of profits that they actually make, reduce that to zero, nationalize a lot of this energy and water and and other rail infrastructure in the country. While that might tackle some of the other issues of of rent-seeking and monopoly pricing and profiting and all of that, will that by definition also reduce carbon emissions? Because you will still need to build stuff. Like warm homes will need to be built by the state or by the company is another matter. But if it's built by the state, they're not going to create materials out of thin air. They'll still have to rely on materials. Uh, True. So you have to to put in, I think, two duties. You have to put in a duty on climate change, not to breach 1.5, the UK to do its fair share. That's tough. It's a very, very tough ask. The economy will look very different. Our lives will look very different. Our work will look very, very different. Uh, the idea that we'll work five days or six or seven or, you know, I mean, all of these things will change. But the second duty, I think, is critical, is a duty on inequality. Because mm. once you put that duty on inequality, then we start to say about inequality in our own country, but also inequality globally. Because you're right. Who has the right to first have the transformation, right? The person in the global south who's denied a dignified life living on less than $5 a day, or the person in the UK, per capita, we are the third heaviest consumption per capita in OECD countries. There are difficult questions. That's why you have to do it. I go back to you have to have like some global agreement. You have to say, what are we going to guarantee everybody? We're going to guarantee people the right to food, guarantee people the right to housing and education and health and think about building a society that way up rather than from the top down where we say the primary objective of ourselves is of course to work to accumulate wealth and then to deliver these particular services so I do and I don't believe when I say public ownership that that's necessarily turning back the clock and saying the state owns everything because I think there are many more efficient ways of ownership that actually empower us as communities and are actually beneficial in themselves. Community-owned ownership is energy is one of them, but I think there are many other models as well. I think there's two uh, points I'd like to add here. One is about technologies. There was a report from uh, Imperial College looking at some of these issues of how to reach a zero-carbon economy that was published 18 months ago, and it was uh, by the people who are looking at uh, urban uh, electricity and transport systems. And 
they're all engineers. They understand the existing technology. And they said that in order to get the best out of it, you have to have a single agent which will guide the whole process. So obviously they're engineers. They avoided, like the play, putting anything overtly political in their report. But what they were saying is that in order to realise the potential that already exists from zero-carbon buildings, for example, if you go to uh, seminars with architects, as, as I've done, you hear them saying, oh, zero-carbon buildings is simple. Retrofitting slightly more complicated, but we can do it. Engineers say zero-carbon urban systems, yes, you can do it, but there's got to be a centralised agent which is going to be able to organise putting all the bits of that system together. So clearly in in the neoliberal kind of market-dominated politics, you're never going to get anywhere near that. I think that people with a radical political outlook, all of us should try to get a bit more a bit more familiar with uh, some of these technological issues and what the technological potentials are. Unfortunately, I think sometimes we get left-wing authors who, who aren't engineers and write books about how technology is going to solve everything. We're going to go to... Fully automated we're communism. Gonna, uh, <laughs> fully automated luxury communism. We're going to go to the moons of Jupiter and mine metals and everything's going to be wonderful and so on. I mean, come on. There's low energy, straightforward technologies which the engineers have been banging on about for years, which are not used because of the social and economic uh, system in which we live. So let's focus on that. Now, the second point I'd make is I hear, as I have what you say about uh, global agreements and so on. Just out of my life experience, I kind of wonder whether we're going to have global agreements of that kind. I think it's going to be very, very messy. And I think it's going to depend, as, as, as you've also pointed out, it's going to depend on the social forces. So if we go back to the beginning of the Yellow Vest movement, Emmanuel Macron uh, introduced this diesel tax and he claimed that it was a climate measure. And the Yellow Vest revolted because they understood it was not a climate measure. It was an austerity measure. It was working class families in France again the state coming to them again and asking them to pay something. And they revolted accordingly. And what's really interesting is although the Wall Street Journal, for example, portrayed the Yellow Vest movement as being a movement against a climate measure, actually, I mean, I had a friend from France uh, who emailed me uh, some of the demands that had come up in his local group where he was active in the Yellow Vest, where they thought exactly about how to move uh, the urban transport systems in their area to a, a low carbon or, or no carbon basis, how they, all the things they wanted where it would be a system based on bikes and walking and public transport and so on. They discussed this, they put those demands forward to the local uh, authorities. Obviously, I know the Yellow Vest movement is very, very heterogeneous and so on, but uh, the point I'm making is that we're always going to have this issue that those in power are always going to try and use this issue just as they use, for example, other things that have now become kind of accepted by the establishment. You know, 30, 40 years ago, we were fighting against racism on the streets. Now, the establishment allegedly, big parts of it, claims to be anti-racist. And they use that to try to adjust their policies of local government or whatever and to justify uh, different things they're doing. Now, this is happening with climate on a massively greater scale. So Macron is justifying his austerity policy in the name of environment. Um, Uh, Well, I I totally agree with you. Look, what we can't have happen is climate change can't be done to the poor, right? right. That's the recipe of no social license. It's the recipe of why the far right has been able to do two things, right? It's been able to posit climate change as something, again, that the rich elites are doing. Look, they're concerned about regulations and about polar bears and and you've lost your job, right? And there's a very famous quote from one of the Yellow Vest protesters, isn't there? You know, the elites worry about the end of the world. We ordinary people worry about the end of the month. So unless you answer that question from a progressive climate perspective, you're right. The answer will be taken away from us. It will either be imposed as a technological answer, again, to benefit the rich and the elite, or we will face another two, three decades of opposition whilst we don't have the social licence to make the transformations that are required. And of course, in the meantime, the reality is we don't have 12 years, right? There's 12 years to save the planet. No, there's no 12 years to save the planet. If you look at what the IPCC said, and in fact, since then, all the new climate science reports, you know, we're talking about if we've not already breached 1.5, we're going to breach 1.5 in a number of years. We'll probably breach two degrees within a decade or more. And 
just to put that in in perspective, the difference between that half a degree is the equivalent of a 9-11 occurring each and every day for the next 70 years in the global south. And people will, and the far right will say, absolutely, the climate change is an issue. As Le Pen does, she says, the answer is the nation state and our tribe. It's the walls and fences. We have to look after ourselves. We have to build our walls. We have to take the resources that we need and we'll be all right. And unfortunately, the you know tragedy of climate change, as we always say, is those who are the most responsible are not the first impacted. And actually, the economies of Europe generally have benefited from climate change. The Norwegian economy grew by 30% because of climate change. The economy of Nigeria, as we mentioned, you're talking, decreased by 30%. India's economy was hit by nearly 30%. So that those disparities of both wealth, power and economy must also be part of that question. So that's why I say I, I don't have an abstract belief in the global agreement. I say when you get the global agreement will be when we've got sufficient political power. When you have sufficient political power, you will have already transformed your national economies, right? The one leads to the other, but they're not separate processes. So the idea that we can find a green deal within our national borders, it's just not practical or realistic. But neither can we wait for some mythical agreement to come before we act. We have to do both. Perhaps someone can just tell anyone that isn't already aware a little bit more about what the the Green New Deal actually is, where it emerged from, what the ideas are behind that, and I guess then, therefore, some of the the problems associated with it. I can take a quick shot at this. Um, It's basically originating from the New Deal, uh, which was a post-war sort of legislative policy framework that accelerated the economic development after a sort of war-torn, war-ravaged United States. Uh, under Roosevelt, if I'm not wrong. So that's where the New Deal part of it comes from. And how it's been adapted in in the UK, in the US primarily, is basically by adding the word green in some sense. So the idea is that for the 21st century, the kind of economic transformation that we'd like to see in response to climate change, as, as the narrative goes, on a war footing, and hence the war analogy continues to sort of be taken forward, uh, is that we, we need that kind of transformation, a green transformation through the 21st century. Um, and that includes the stuff that's already been mentioned, your transportation sector moving towards cleaner technologies, your buildings moving towards sort of cleaner, efficient, warmer homes, agriculture moving towards a system where it's less to do with carbon emissions, more to do with environmental benefits, all of that. So it's a sort of systemic, large-scale transformation that we're hoping to see as part of the Green New Deal. As it stands today, there are no policies within that. It's just a framework. It's just an idea. What differentiates Green New Deal thinking today in 2019 versus some of the thinking that's happened in the past is it provides an umbrella term for not just carbon emissions, but also understanding systemic issues that led us to where we are today. In that sense, it's slightly novel. But again, it hits the problem what Assad sort of, again, mentioned is it can become an economic nationalistic project where you're sort of looking at it within your own borders and not really understanding or responding to a highly globalized world that we live in and and the movement of materials and resources that happens on on a minute-by-minute, second-by-second basis around the world. And the implications of that uh, in the context of climate change doesn't get talked about, at least from my understanding of the Green New Deal today, isn't really talked about. And that is something that I think is, is a chink in the armor, let's say. But otherwise, it's it's a bold framework for systemic transformation to tackle climate change. Although I would say we, we do talk about it because we talk about a global Green Deal for people, which does try and look at from a systemic point of view and, of course, also from the perspective of the global south. So, so tries to think through, you know, what does a strategy which talks about uh, green industrial growth actually mean for the consequences of like resource use and finite planet and all of those things and tries to think through about how you marry those two issues together. So quite rightly, the Green Deal as a framework is a step forward because it's moved as we have always wanted it to move climate from being purely looked at through an environmental lens to actually look at it through a justice lens and look at social and economic aspects in terms of that. 
but so we can marry, for example, demands like if we're going to call for a living wage here for workers, we should be calling for a global living wage. If we're going to be saying that the Green New Deal is an answer to austerity in this country, then we should be calling for universal basic services like health and education and housing globally. These are things that are actually totally achievable. We can absolutely do them technologically, money-wise, systems-wise. It's, it's the political will to do them. And then to start talking about energy and the right to food. So are we going to guarantee people the right to food? Because that changes the whole conversation about food and food production. Should it be in the hands of industrial agribusiness? Uh, how much emissions come from it? We know that 70% of the world relies on small farming for food, right? And majority of that is on only about 25% of land. A lot of the rest of the land is for industrial processes or, of course, for our overconsumption. So it's about a redistribution of wealth and the economy and balance. But it's also recognising that the answer is not progressive growth, left growth, green growth in a planet which has finite resources. Every tonne of resource extraction also has a story of huge environmental injustices for communities that we've largely ignored for decades and decades and are actually quite rightly saying, what about our right, right? And, and I think this is a question, this is an interesting question, and it's been one for progressive governments, even in the global south who've recognised the crisis of climate change, but have a population who say, I want basics. I want to be able to have more than a phone charger and one electric bulb. We want productive energy. We want the right to have a refrigerator. We want the right to have a, a school and a clinic. We want all of those things. And of course, then, if you don't have the redistribution of wealth, poorer countries are left only with one answer again, which is extract your natural resources, be a big commodity-based economy and sell to the global north. So I think, you know, whilst it's beyond us to at this point say, can we imagine the end of neoliberalism? If we can imagine the end of civilization as we know it, that's what's down the road. Surely we can imagine the end of capitalism because the answer to stopping that goes through capitalism. There's no, I don't think anybody from climate scientists to anybody who would seriously argue that the solutions to the climate crisis can be done within the present economic model like in, a, in any serious way. They can talk about cutting emissions, shaving off emissions, being more efficient, being more productive, doing all of those things. But fundamentally, in terms of being able to do the kind of emission reduction that we need, no. I mean, that's why I have a problem with the 2050 goal or the Climate Change Committee, because the Climate Change Committee took a political position. It took a political position that it wouldn't do anything, it wouldn't recommend anything that would affect the British economy and allow us to continue to grow. The IPCC models were always, of course, agreed by consensus between political parties. So those are all prefaced on the economy has to keep moving in the same way. They're going to be growth in the same way. It's only when you start to unpack that that you actually begin to think, yes, we really can bring our emission reductions down. So I think we're, we're faced with those two choices, right? We Either you imagine the end of capitalism or we have to start saying what living in a three or four degree world will look like. One thing it'd be good to touch on like now is you've mentioned already that we clearly need a movement and a sort of a radical movement. It's not going to come from the vested interests in the current economic system. It's not going to come from the top down. But firstly, there has been this renewed public interest, public attention, concern with climate change or the climate crisis, certainly here in the UK. And it seemed like it came out of the blue. So I'd be kind of interested to get your take on why there is this attention to the subject now. And also to get your take on the movement, the sort of the groundswell of the campaigns that have emerged with the youth strike, with Extinction Rebellion and so on. Is this the kind of movement that we need? In what way is it a really good thing? And what are some of the issues with it as well? So I realise there's two questions there. I think, first of all, that uh, the strikes by school students are incredibly important and I think they're a real turning point. I think, as Assad's mentioned, there's been huge movements which have bound together environmental issues and social issues in the global south for many, many, many years. I remember visiting uh, Nigeria 
many years ago and uh, the movement in the Niger Delta to defend communities against the encroachment of the oil companies who literally drip oil into people's drinking water. And this has been going on for, for many years. They had the death of Ken Sarawiwa and so on. And a huge movement in that delta where it's inconceivable to think of uh, ecology and the natural surroundings separately from the issues of social justice. So I'd say in many ways those movements are far more developed in a lot of those countries than they are here. But I think in the rich countries, including the UK, I think this is a turning point. There's a lot of young people. You've only got to go on Twitter and look at some of the films as uh, Brussels earlier in the year. There was one from Germany uh, last week uh, where there are absolutely massive crowds of school pupils. And I think you're asking what has caused this I think what's happening in the rich countries is that climate change is becoming very real in a way that it has been in the Niger Delta or in parts of uh, South Asia and so on for many, many years already. Um, The 20 hottest years, I think, have all been within the last 22 years. So it doesn't matter what the President of the United States says. It doesn't matter what the Prime Minister of the UK says. People can see and feel this. And uh, one of the good things about the David Attenborough film on BBC, which has taken the BBC a long time uh, to come round to not interviewing climate science deniers every time they mention the subject, but you know they finally put the Attenborough film on. And one of the things it show very graphically is like wildfires and sea level rise and the effect of that in the United States of America, not only in uh, Bangladesh or in uh, some of the floods we've seen in, in Central America and so on, but I mean these problems are coming home uh, to first world populations. So I think that's what's driving the uh, school students movement. I think it's very real. I think the other thing is I I went to an Extinction Rebellion event recently and uh, one of the most important things is a young woman stood up and said, look, young people are suffering from climate grief. We're realising that we're not only not going to live the lives our parents led, but we're not going to live the lives that they told us we would lead. And uh, they're looking at the future in a very kind of bleak way. I think where that grief and that realisation that the international political system really has uh, completely failed in the way that we've talked about, where that turns to anger and we're seeing that with the school students coming out on the street, I think that's very profound. That reminds me of the Vietnam War movement, the Ban the Bomb movement, which happened when I was much younger, uh, which really motivated uh, young people in rich countries in a quite extraordinary way. And I think we're seeing them motivated about... Uh, this issue. And I think that has disrupted the political narrative. I think the establishment will do everything it can to try to co-opt this movement. Uh, I mean, Theresa May was too stupid to do what Angela Merkel did and just say, oh, I really, you know, Angela Merkel said, oh, I think it's really great the students are out uh, campaigning, pat them on the head. But there's absolutely no guarantee, I think, that the political establishment will be able to control this movement. And they're now talking in uh, September about going on strike and calling workers out on strike with them. I think this is a really important uh, change. You're right that there has been a sense of moral panic in the global north. You know, I think the summer of forest fires and heat waves then coupled with the IPCC report, you know, sent this shockwave and uh, it has clearly generated two interesting movements, one of youth climate strikers and one of Extinction Rebellion. And having worked with lots of climate justice movements globally, I mean, the perennial question that movements would always ask is, why isn't there a climate movement or a climate justice movement in the global north, right? We're resisting, but it's your companies, it's your City of London, it's your institutions that are driving this. Where is this big movement that will stand in solidarity with us? And to some extent, we can say we've gone through a strange period where internationalism has largely vanished out of the political space. This is no longer the time of Vietnam or anti-apartheid or all of those when people saw themselves beyond the nation state and saw this solidarity. It's, It's actually been quite lonely for people who work on internationalism issues, right, in in trying to build that solidarity. Then, of course, people are like, great, we've seen this movement out, brilliant. And then I got people questioning, saying, so why are they occupying roads and bridges? Because they're not what's killing us. It's your banks and your corporations. And I think there's an interesting dynamic now, which is, first of all, we've got to remember history. The moment we're in, we've been here before, even on climate. Because just before Copenhagen, in the infamous Copenhagen climate negotiations, climate was front page of every newspaper. Politicians were talking about it. You had thousands of people marching for climate. And it ended up in simply saying to people, 
change your light bulb, don't use straws, because all it talked about was take action on climate change. I remember the slogan, tick, 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 we're a minute before midnight, take action on climate change. I have a worry that when your demands don't have a policy framework behind them, that they can so easily be co-opted, as we've seen with the climate emergency. So just in the last week or two weeks, where the UK Parliament adopt climate emergency and then green light Heathrow. We've had the Canadian government adopt climate emergency and green line oil pipelines. We've the Irish government adopt climate emergency and green light oil extraction off their coast. So what does it mean to simply do that, right? And to take your language and your frame and co-opt them. And I think there is a danger. What I find fascinating now about the the youth climate strike is, is actually that they are going leaps and bounds ahead of the mainstream NGO movement and even the bigger Extinction Rebellion, right? The fact that they've prioritised and said we support a Green Deal. They're willing to talk about system change. I've been on their process and to hear young people have an analysis of the economic model, that gives me hope because I don't want them to have climate grief. Because when you have climate grief, in that grief, you open the door to anybody doing anything to stop that emergency. And that's always been the danger, right? People will say, I have the answer to that. And of course, we see that, right? We see that with the false solutions, the geoengineering, all of those people saying, we will come and we'll save you. We'll save you either by technology or we'll save you at the expense of everybody else, like a lifeboat. We know that there's that kind of ideology out there. So I think we're in a very, very interesting moment. It's whether these movements can genuinely now be international, can connect with the powerful global movements in the global south, whether they are humble enough to learn from those movements, to take on their demands and their agenda, and then say that their point of contestation is our economic system, it's the city of London, it's our corporations and our banks. Then I think we start to say we're making an impact. At the moment, I still think we're in the expression but not necessarily, I won't even say we're in the resist bit yet. We're in the, oh, then we need to be in the resist. Then we need to be mobilising. And I think that, again, it's great that the youth climate strike has talked about linking up with work with unions. Of course, the reality is most workers are not going to be able to take the day off, right? So many people are on precarious contracts. We've got, you know, record levels of inequality and poverty. And so that becomes a real difficult choice for people. So I think it's a slow conversation, but it's a good conversation at the beginning. Then I think we've got to get into the transform. And that's where I like the fact that they've adopted that Green Deal and said, we're going to rally behind it because that could be a game changer in this country. Because as you quite rightly said, some of us are old enough to have been through three maybe of these moments. But when I look at the the layer of climate justice activists now, the mainstream on them, and you ask them what politicised you, they will say the war in Iraq. This generation that's out on the street now, they will be politicised by climate. And if they're politicised by climate in a justice way, that is an incredible movement of people that we could potentially have got on our side. This is indeed exciting. I think, I mean, the phrases that were used were sort of moral panic, climate grief, and other phrases that I've come across is sort of existential unease. It's a little more complex, but um, I think a lot of people are feeling that and want to sort of get out of that and, and, and try and see what they can do about it. And the youth strikes and Extinction Rebellion are, are sort of symptoms of that. Uh, and I think that's positive. And if they evolve and if they adopt some of these uh, principles around internationalism and about solidarity uh, with the global south movements, things like that, then one can go from strength to strength. So there is hope in that sense. So I think that's a good way to end this, I suppose. <laughs> Always hope. <laughs> so a few days after recording this conversation with Assad, Chaitanya and Simon, I was lucky enough to sit down with Anna Taylor, the 18-year-old environmental activist who began the school climate strike movement here in the UK. I wanted to get her perspective on the wave of activism that has brought climate change back to the top of the agenda and get a sense of where the movement is heading next. So Greta Thunberg started the school climate strike movement on the 20th of August, I think it was, last year, outside the Swedish parliament. Uh, and since then, the strike's been picked up on youth movements around the world. Um, do you have a sense, firstly, of how many countries and indeed sort of how many people have been participating in that movement since then? Um, I know that over 4,000 strikes are now registered on the Fridays for Future map. And that is um, across the world in every single continent. And 
in our deep strike on the 15th of March, which is like a global strike, we had over a million people that went on strike that day. Uh, we have another deep strike in September, so hopefully the numbers will be even bigger then. Mm. And when did you first sort of personally start engaging with this issue? And then what inspired you to take action based on that interest? I've always been interested in environmental activism and I always tried to get involved in it as a kid. I used to phone up Greenpeace and I asked to volunteer when I was 12 years old and they said I had to wait until I was 18, which I was very upset about. I did lie to my parents a couple of times and actually go on a Greenpeace march, but I told them I was going over to a friend's house when I was like 12 years old. So um, it's all coming out now. Um, <laughs> I was always certainly very interested in it, but I never really knew how to get involved. It felt like I kept trying to get involved. I joined the Eco Council in my school, but no one else my age really seemed to be interested. And it wasn't until the Extinction Rebellion movement really got going in the last year and they started doing more protests that I started seeing a revival in environmental activism and realised that this was the perfect opportunity to get involved in as well and try and encourage other youth to become involved in. And after seeing the school strikes across the world, that's when I realised that actually people in my generation do care about this and are passionate about it. And all I had to do was help mobilise the students in the UK. So what exactly has your role been in organising the strikes here? I helped set up the first event page on Facebook and organised the first national strike. Um, I also founded UK Student Climate Network, which is a not-for-profit student-led um, environmental organisation. And we help um, coordinate the strikes in the UK. Uh, we also have groups across the UK. And as a decentralised movement, the local groups can also do campaigns of their own as well. So why sort of strike action? What do you think is the rationale behind that as a tactic? I think historically, strike action has a lot of political importance and it has seen success in the past. But I think with students, it's unique in that secondary school kids and even primary school kids have never really gone on strike like this before. So it is a unique movement, although it's been done before. Um, the age group is very different here. And I think people are doing it out of desperation. And, you know, the students feel like we have no other choice. Missing school has been a very controversial topic, but that has actually acted in our favour because it means people are talking about it more. Now people are debating about it over the dinner table and we've had so many interviews about, you know, should school kids be going on strike or not? But effectively what those interviews are also discussing is, is climate change an important enough issue for kids to go on strike or not? So actually what we're doing by going on strike is effectively just causing more discussions about mm. climate change. And have you noticed like a shift in the responses, I guess, to that question um, since when they were started and, and where we are now? Yeah, definitely. I think a lot more people are supportive of the strikes now in the general public. There have been a few polls where people have asked the general public on their overall opinion of the strikes and they've all come out as a majority of support for the strikes. Obviously, they are still controversial and there are still some people that strongly disagree with them. But overall, I think from hearing students talk in interviews and reading about them in the newspapers, the public are becoming more understanding, not only of our perspective, but also of the importance of what we're doing. Mm. So as I understand it, there are a series of like demands that your movement's been making. So what are those demands and have any of them been met? So the first demand is to declare a national climate emergency and take active steps towards climate justice through the implementation of a Green New Deal. Um, a climate emergency was declared a couple of months ago, but unfortunately, I don't think we're really seeing any active steps towards climate justice yet on behalf of the government. Uh, there's a group of people working on developing a Green New Deal, which is certainly an improvement, but there has been no decisive political action in regards to a Green New Deal. The second demand is to reform the national curriculum so that it accurately portrays the ecological crisis. There has been a consensus about that with party leaders apart from the Conservatives at our roundtable meeting a couple of months ago. So that is progress. But as of yet, we're yet to see any action regarding that as well. Um, the third demand is to accurately portray the severity of the crisis to the general public. And I think we have seen some improvement in that purely because the strikes have uh, forced the media to discuss climate change more. Um, the BBC have certainly produced more information about climate change, especially on their website since we started. 
And The Guardian have changed their use of terminology so that they now use climate crisis, I think it is, instead mm. of climate change. So there is definitely an improvement in that aspect. And the fourth one is to recognise that as the youth, we have the greatest stake in our future by incorporating youth views into policymaking and bringing the voting age down to 16. So there was a consensus again at the roundtable that the voting age should be brought down to 16. But I think we're still yet to see a lot of progress in that demand as well. Mm. And it's definitely something that's been taken up before for my sins. I used to be a Liberal Democrat when I was 16 because mm. they used yeah. to have that as yeah. one of their policy points, but it never has come to anything yet. So just to touch back yeah. on the first of those demands then, like the Green New Deal and climate justice, these were both things that came up a lot in our discussion the other day. The fact that both of these form the basis for the first of the student climate networks demands, I think is quite telling of how far the climate movements come uh, in this country, certainly, um, seeing climate change as more than just like an environmental issue. So why is this idea of climate justice so important? It's a difficult question to answer. Why is it so important? Because for me, it's always been the most important thing. But I suppose the problem is that the public haven't always recognised that. And also, I do recognise environmental justice as extremely important as well. It's not that, you know, humans are more important than the environment, but rather that this is effectively... Um, an issue that's directly related to capitalism, in my opinion. Um, I don't think it's possible to achieve climate justice under a capitalist system. And the idea of climate justice focuses on the fact that the people who are having the most impact on causing climate change are also the ones that will suffer the least, and the people who will suffer the most are the ones having the least impact. And that includes people within our society and within this country as well, when you look across classes, um, across ethnic minorities, and all the other variations in our society. But also, if you look on a global scale, and you realise people in the global south often will suffer the most as a result of climate change, but they're the ones having the least impact as well. Naturally, in society, we have a historical tendency to disregard our responsibility, and humans are often selfish in the sense that they fail to recognise the greater responsibility that they have, whereas climate justice is about recognising that you know, climate change doesn't have borders and that we are all facing this issue together, but some people will be affected worse than others. And we have a responsibility to accept that, you know, there's a variation mm. in impact. Yeah. Again, just to circle back to people getting more engaged with the issue, um, again, here in the UK, when Greta Thunberg sort of started the strike movement, that really resonated with people. But What's changed from where we were even just like a year ago? Some people would say that the publication of reports such as the IPCC report has had a massive impact. And I do agree that that did have a large impact and other reports since then are also very important in highlighting uh, the nature of the crisis. But I think there have been a lot of scientific reports published before that. Mm. Um, and I think actually the main thing that has changed is how receptive people are to those reports, um, how much they take them seriously and actually read them and consider them. I definitely think the youth strike movement has encouraged the public to take those reports seriously. And I think it's effectively, when you think about the butterfly effect, lots of people thought about it before. And I think, you know, I was always concerned with the environment, but I didn't know how to really push for change. And what people like Greta Thunberg have done is mainly created a pathway which other people can follow. And by all kind of going down that same pathway, we're more able to create change and she inspired lots of other people who were already a bit interested to actually immerse themselves in that push for environmental reform. Mm. For me, like when I was at university, which was, you know, 10 years ago now, 2009 was a big sort of flashpoint. There was the climate camp movement. There was the mobilization for Copenhagen summit. And it felt like a lot of that energy dissipated afterwards. Maybe people were disappointed. They put all their sort of eggs in one basket in terms of the the climate negotiations and it felt like we had this real sort of fallow period of about about 10 years where there had been a lot of engagement with and like a sense of urgency around climate change and then it just went away and now it's it's back again what do you think this movement needs to be sustainable in a way that it hasn't been in the past 
there are lots of things. I think we're all very conscious of the fact that movements tend to die out. I've been conscious about that from the very start. Um, and I'm determined to not let this one die out. I think what it needs is a lot of people involved to keep it going. It has to be a mass movement, um, a decentralized movement, in my opinion, and one where every individual has a responsibility towards it themselves as well and can impact it. I think the mass number of people involved now means it's less likely to die out because even if a few people get tired of it and decide that they can't put in the effort anymore, other people will definitely step up into their place. I think lots of the time movements do need a degree of success to motivate them to keep going. And we are slowly seeing a bit of success. It's not fast enough, but the fact we're seeing some success is hopeful and if anything, the fact we're seeing a little bit of success but not enough just makes people even more determined um, to fight harder for that. I also think what we have now, which we might not have had before, is that desperation. Um, and I think with every generation of kids, like kids in primary school now, I think they'll feel that desperation even more. The younger you are, the more stressed you feel about climate change because the greater the threat is to your future. Mm. And... That's a big reason why we can't let this movement die out because we can't afford to let that happen anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think about the government's proposed citizens' assembly, um, its stated commitment to like a zero carbon economy by 2050, I think it is? Does it seem like an adequate response? I mean, in principle, those are all good responses. But firstly, we need to do far more than just that. Um, like far more than just that. Uh, secondly, they haven't shown any actual committed action towards that. They're making empty promises, which is something governments have done for as long as I can remember, pretty much as for long the, as they have been yeah, the whole <laughs> the whole of history. And we need urgent action now. We can't afford to wait 20 years and then start thinking about actually doing the things that they said 20 years ago. We need urgent action now and we need to do far more than what they've already said. Do you feel like there's a danger of the movement being co-opted into certain avenues like this? I think we're pretty conscious of the risk of that. Maybe that's a strength that kids have and that teens have is that they're naturally more sceptical of the government and mm. they often have a fresh perspective and offer a new perspective. And I think that's a real benefit to this movement. The fact it's student-led means that we're more able to push for our demands and not be forced to compromise with their less than adequate suggestions. Mm. I mean, that makes sense to me. Like, I think looking at young people today and the sort of the politics that young people today have, it's extremely impressive. Not just in terms of the response to climate change, but in terms of awareness of like feminism and patriarchy and all these different things. On your Twitter profile, I think you describe yourself as a feminist and like a mental health advocate as well as an environmental activist. I mean, do you see these as separate strands or issues or do you think they all intersect? Uh, I think they certainly do intersect. I think the stage we're at at the moment in politics is one where people are recognising those really long-standing weaknesses. You know, things like you already listed as in patriarchy and also, you know, the historical aversion to like mental health, which is such a massive thing in everyone's life. And also that historical lack of responsibility for the environment. I think these are all linked as in they're all consequences of human society. But people are starting to wake up to that and are starting to change. And I think this is an incredibly, I don't know, I feel like really honoured to be in this political era, in a way, it's incredibly stressful. It's a mess at the moment. But I feel like the generation I'm in at the moment have a very different perspective. And I'm really proud to be a part of that generation. So what's next for the climate movement here in the UK and the youth movement specifically, I suppose? Are there any actions or big events in the pipeline? Um, yeah, so we've got a mobilisation on the 20th of September, which is our next massive event in the pipeline. That's going to be a deep strike across the world but we're also calling on the public to join us for that one as well so it won't just be students striking then but also members of the public hopefully that will be our biggest one yet and we will have more events following that as well the next year is looking to be a very busy year again i'd like to thank asad chaitanya simon and anna for making this such an interesting discussion 
to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then do please consider leaving us a review and sharing the link with your friends and networks. Once again, you can check out a number of our books dealing with ecology, the environment and the climate crisis on our website. Just go to www.plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading. All those books are 50% off for the next month. Just use the code podcast at the checkout. We'll be back next month with another episode of Radicals in Conversation. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.